So we are midway through this series that I've called The God I Don't Understand that really deals with some of the troubling images of God in the Old Testament. We've gone through quite a bit of stuff already, uh, and tonight we're wrapping up some of the harsher laws that we find in the Old Testament. If I could put it briefly, tonight we're talking a little bit more from our continued discussion of last week about why it is that God would instantly allow people to die. Now, let me say it straight, that God would kill people for doing certain things. It troubled some of us last week. Normally, the way that we do things is we hash things out for a while, and then we have some application that's going to wrap up the series. I'm actually going to do something different. I'm actually going to take tonight to get very practical and to bring some application into our series in the middle of it. This series is too important, and some of us are struggling with some issues that I think, why not just deal with some of them now? And then we're going to continue next week, as you can see, into dealing with some of the troubling images of the way that women are treated in the Old Testament with some related issues, and then finally getting into the hardest part of dealing with how do we understand the passages, the wartime passages of the Old Testament, the ones where it seems like ethnic cleansing and genocide are being committed, at least that's the charge that we often hear from critics of the scriptures. So I want to spend some time tonight picking up what we did a little bit last week and seeing if we can understand how this works for us in our faith. If you want to just review last week or you weren't here, we just put on the screen some of the things from the Old Testament that would merit the death penalty. Some things to us don't seem very meritorious, like striking your father or mother or just cursing your father or mother being something that was punishable by death. Some of these others, like working on the Sabbath, which of course we dealt with, or being a medium or wizard, or even just blaspheming the Lord. Last week we looked at three specific ones in depth. We looked at gathering wood on the Sabbath, and the story where a person who was found gathering wood on the Sabbath, they brought him in front of Moses, and they said, what do we do? And Moses consulted with the Lord, and the Lord said he should be stoned to death. We looked at the two sons of Aaron who were incinerated for offering unauthorized fire in the tabernacle uh, of the Lord. And then we also looked at the story of Uzzah who touched the ark because he was trying to steady it to keep it from falling and he was instantly struck dead by the Lord. Some of us were troubled and we left off in a kind of a troubled place. So what I want to do is I want to use these three stories tonight not to go over them again, because we've done that, but now to see if we can draw out of them, how do we deal with these troubling images? Now you might think that's the question that we're dealing with in the whole series, but let me focus on it and make it personal to you. How are you gonna deal with these issues? I want tonight to give you a couple of tools that I might suggest to help us so that we might deal with them. This isn't really like how do we answer those to other people. I'm talking more personally tonight. When these things trouble us a little bit, what do we do? What is our tendency? Some of us, I've said, just skip right over them and don't look at these passages at all. Some of us, for the first time, are finding out about them because we just have never even ventured into that part of the Old Testament. Some of us kind of look for an answer and then it shakes us a little bit when we're encountering these. So tonight I'm asking that personally. What can we do? How do we think about these passages in a way that makes our faith a little more secure, not less secure? Here's what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to give you a couple steps tonight because we're going to need these before we press forward and start talking about some of the even more difficult passages that we're going to look at. So this first step I would suggest to you is this one. 
we need to make sure that we understand what it is we're troubled by. We need to get a good picture of what it is we're being troubled about. If I could say it a different way, if I could say it in the negative, many of us are troubled by something on face value and we don't do any more investigation. It looks to us very troubling on its face. <clears throat> if I told you that the penalty for gathering wood on the Sabbath was that this person was executed, you'd think, wow, what a harsh God we serve. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be troubled by that, but we need a few more facts. So let me give you an example. Flash back with me to the first week when we first intro this whole series. And I gave you an example that maybe by now we've kind of forgotten about. And that example was, are you troubled that God is called a jealous God? That he says, I'm a jealous God? That he's referred to as a jealous God? And most of us were not troubled. But if you looked at this on face value, if you just heard, like the example I gave, the person who's now reading the scriptures for the first time that I'm in conversation with, he was instantly troubled by that. He was troubled by it and said, I don't understand how a God could be so weak that he would be jealous. Like, what kind of emotion is that for a God? But we spent more time. All of us have probably spent more time understanding that. So we, we get how the word is used. We get the metaphor that's being used about. And we think, yeah, I'm not troubled by that. Because you've lived with it a little bit longer. But if you saw it for the first time, you might be troubled. I'm going to ask you to use that same idea tonight to think about the things that really troubled us last week investigate them a little bit. So for example, going back to the idea in Numbers 15 that somebody was to be put to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. Yeah, on face value, this seems very harsh. But here's what I'd like to add to it. Does it make any difference to you if I added a few facts? Does it make any difference that God had twice commanded that there be no type of work on the Sabbath, and he had twice made very clear what the consequences would be? Does that somehow make us feel at least a little bit more understanding about what's going on? Does it make a difference, for example, that this story comes right after Israel disobeys God, so much so that he's led them miraculously through the desert, and in two years they've reached the promised land, and they're ready to go in, and Joshua and Caleb go in and say, we can take these people, and everybody else says, no, we can't. Does it matter in any way to the story that the disobedience of God's people is beginning to rise to a level where they're not even doing the purpose of what he brought them through the Exodus to do? They're refusing to listen to him. Even after they've seen all these miraculous things that have led up to this point, and they refuse to actually go in the promised land. Does it make a difference that this story comes immediately after this disobedience is getting to a level that there is open grumbling against the Lord, even a desire repeatedly, I want to go back to Egypt. Forget everything you've done for me. Forget all the miraculous things I've seen. Forget that your presence is leading us, that the glory of the Lord is in front of us. I want to go back to Egypt. I'm so sick and tired of eating this manna and walking through this desert. Does that matter somehow that God seems to come out to enforce the penalty at that time? Would it add anything to your understanding if you knew that there's a literal a rebellion begins in the camp against God? Moses has to plead with the Lord, don't strike these people down. The Lord's anger is burning against them. And Moses is pleading with the Lord not to do this. And the Lord is asking Moses, how long are these people going to go without trusting me? How, how is it that they don't believe that I'm going to provide for them? Does that make a difference when you see somebody violating 
the Sabbath to go gather wood because they don't think that God can actually provide for them on the Sabbath. Does it make a difference that this appears to be the first violation? And that God is setting a standard to ensure that his commands are taken seriously? That he's feared and obeyed? Does it make a difference that this might be one of a kind story? One that we have no evidence is ever repeated again? That no other story records execution for breaking the Sabbath, even though we know throughout Scripture that Israel repeatedly broke the Sabbath. Does that change your thinking at least a little bit about the harshness of the story? Tell me, if it doesn't, if you're still troubled, I'm okay with you still being troubled. What I want to know is I want you to tell me, are you troubled 100% or did it somehow decrease a little bit? Did your trouble somehow at least come back into context? Because I don't think it's going to go down to zero. I don't look at this story and think, well, that, that's it. I mean, maybe in this one I'm okay. But at least I'm telling you the first step we have to do is to understand what is it that I'm really troubled about. Because on face value, this story just sounds really uncharacteristic. But as I start to see and read, which most of us don't do sometimes when we see something on face value, and go back and go, what's going on in the book of Numbers? Actually, what's going on in the whole first few books of the Bible that's leading up to this? From the Exodus forward, what's happening that this would happen? And you start to see that there are all these points and several others that I didn't put up here. You'll be glad to know. Let me try another one. How about this example? We saw the two sons of Aaron walk into the tabernacle, offer this unauthorized fire, and they're immediately incinerated by the Lord. Okay. What if these facts were added in? Does it make a difference that in this case, God had given very, very, very specific instructions on how people were to approach him in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and it just goes on and on and on. I know some of you have seen it because we get to that part in the Bible and we think, do I need to read this? Do I need to even know this? I mean, there's just so much detail here about stuff that I don't know if it even matters. Does it matter, for example... That this story comes immediately after the priests have commissioned the tabernacle before all the people. The priests themselves are being commissioned on that day. This is like the beginning of finally we come to the culmination. The priests are being commissioned. The tabernacle is here. God is in our midst. The glory of the Lord descends. And there's this huge dedication where all the people shout and cheer because God has now established himself in the middle there. And this story comes immediately afterwards. Does that make a difference to us? Would it make a difference if you knew that unauthorized fire was a pagan ritual that neighboring nations did when they were trying to dedicate new priests? Whatever unauthorized fire is, that's probably why we translate it in that way. Um, but that idea of something that the Lord did not authorize was most likely something that the neighboring nations did to their pagan gods. Does it matter that God says he's holy and he's going to remain holy and he prescribes all these details which are immediately violated? Last one that we did last week. Somebody dies instantly for touching the ark and we talked about this last week. Does it matter that God had given these specific commandments about how to build the ark, how to carry the ark, so much so that into its design were rings that you had to have and the poles to hold it so that even the people carrying it couldn't touch it. And that the poles were never to even be removed. They were supposed to stay in the rings just to make sure that somehow it wasn't even accidentally touched the wrong way as the poles were being inserted. 
Does that matter when somebody puts the ark on a cart and starts to move it? Does it matter that Israel had lost this ark in a battle and that it was insulting for it to be carried by these oxen on a cart? Does it make a difference that it was the Philistines who had first placed the ark on a cart and the Israelites were now continuing that practice, evidencing their lack of care, which had caused it to be lost in the first place? Does that make a difference? I mean, the Lord's ark lost to the enemies comes back on a cart and stays on the cart. Does that matter that immediately after this person who does not touch the ark correctly or shouldn't even touch it at all, that suddenly the next part of the story shows everybody carrying it correctly? Everybody understanding exactly how it's to be carried. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to demonstrate that the first thing we have to do is get past our view at what things look like at first value, like at first glance. To just go a step deeper before we even go to the next thing. To say, all right, I just need to at least know what it is I'm troubled by. Many people are troubled by things they've heard about. Or somebody will say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God did this, and I'll just show you a verse. And you'll look at it and think, hmm, yeah, that's, I don't know what to do with that. What I'm telling you, the first thing you need to do with it is make sure you understand all of it. So at least if you're still troubled, which you can be, you're at least troubled about the right thing. And look at it and say, okay, I'm still troubled that despite all of these things, what did poor Uzzah really do except try to prevent the ark from falling over? I see all of this and I understand it. And I can see that God might even have a reason for it, but I'm still a little bit troubled by it. That's better than just looking at it and thinking, what kind of God just zaps people for trying to, you know, steady his holy box? Really doesn't make any sense. All right, anyone want to push back on that? Yes. I was just kind of wondering, why doesn't God punish us like this? What I believe on that point is that we are meant to see this as an example of what we deserve to see. So I think that one of the fallacies we have, if I could answer it this way, is we often think it's unfair that God would strike this poor guy down and then allow somebody else like an evil king to live for 20 some years and do all these things, or have some king, like take a king like Ahab, who turns the whole nation to worshiping a false god, and you think like, okay, on some scale, like worshiping false gods and killing all the prophets of God seems to be really, really big compared to trying to steady the ark, right? And that's what we're really struggling with, is even ourselves, we think, well, I've done things that I think are bad, like why isn't he punished this way? Well, first, I'm glad he doesn't do that, all of us are. I think second, though, I don't see any reason that he can't. I mean, there's nothing that I see that says that, oh, because we've somehow crossed testaments, that that rule doesn't apply. And the proof of that is last week, I cited to Ananias and Sapphira, who were struck dead because they lied about the amount of giving they were doing to the church. The same principles apply, it seems. Here's the beginning of the church. Here's a time when it's crucial for people to understand the power of the Holy Spirit. And people lie about giving and they're struck dead. And you think, yeah, but as the church goes on, all the things that happen wrong, like God seems to set the standard early on. So I don't think that this is an Old Testament thing. I think it's actually just we see more beginnings of phases in the Old Testament. But at the beginning of the church, this is very powerful. And we see the same exact thing happen in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The last point I would make is this argument about fairness, 
I think it's actually upside down to me. It just means that all of us deserve that kind of punishment. Like I would, I actually believe that all of us deserve to be judged by God and to instantaneously die for our sin. What gets weird is when we see that he somehow allows some people to go a little bit further and other people he doesn't give that weight to, we call that unfair. But arguing for fairness would mean arguing for our annihilation instantly. And I'm not so sure I'm ready to do that. I mean, I feel it because I think, okay, in my sense of fairness, I want you to take out the real big people first, and I want there to be some order of how it goes. Like people who do heinous, heinous things go first, and people who just try to steady the ark, they're like, if we have time for them, we'll get to them later. But I think God has a larger view in mind, which is every once in a while, people need to remember my holiness and remember my standard. But if I were to give everybody a reminder of my holiness and my standard, literally there'd just be nobody alive. And this whole thing would end. I think that's what fairness would demand. Fairness would demand annihilation. (coughs) Yes? I think it's um, real easy to get tunnel vision sometimes when reading through the scriptures. And I guess what I'm perceiving from what you're saying is, you know, we need to read the entirety of what's before us and what God is trying to show us versus getting stuck up in petty arguments about God's fairness and, and this and that. Well, I would, still be, I would still allow us to be troubled by it. It's just that I want us to be well informed about what we're troubled about. So I want to be clear, what I'm not saying is, if you look at these three points on the screen, you should no longer have an issue with this. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, if you look at these three points on the screen, you should have less of an issue than you did if you just heard that God saw some guy trying to steady the ark and struck him dead. Uh, Because that is actually how most of us think about it. That's how critics think about it. But actually what disturbs me most, that's about the depth that most Christians think about it. They're troubled by it in a way, but they haven't done the work to go, well, let's, let's hear all the reasons. Let's think of everything possible. And at the end, yeah, I'm still going to be far away from totally understanding God and his ways, but I'm closer than I was when I first just looked at this and thought, yeah, I don't know what to make of that, and just moved on. Okay? Abby. Okay, so I guess my question is, like, what does Jesus' sacrifice on the cross have to do with these people which seem to have to themselves atone for their sins? Did these people's death earn their salvation because they literally had to pay for their sins? I actually think that these people, because they were under the law at the time, would have their salvation judged by how they followed the law, right? A lot of people, when they look at the story of Uzal touching the ark, say he probably had pure motive. There is no indication that he was a sinful person. He just did something that violated the holiness of God. So even if that was the sin that he committed and he died for it, uh, that's no different than anybody else, any of us, who are saved by grace in some way, totally forgiven of all our sins, but we're still going to die. Like, we don't escape death. So our salvation, if I could say it that way, has little to do with our, the fact that we're going to die. Everyone is going to die. We often read into death some sort of judgment. Okay, I mean, here it's like the, he, he did something wrong and he, he paid the ultimate penalty for it, right? But I have no information as to, like, the state of Uzzah's heart. And is he like, the minute he dies, he's in front of the Lord. And he's like, hey, sorry I had to do that, but I really had to set the example, you know, like, (laughs) bummer for you. I I don't know. But even if that happened, and I kind of jokingly say that, 
I don't know that that's worse than the condition we live in. Like, to, to be in the Lord's presence, like, is that a punishment to forfeit your life? We're all going to lose our life. We love our life a little too much, if I could say it that way, so that when we see a tragedy like this, we think, that is the worst possible thing ever. I, I don't know. I really don't think that's true. At least, I don't theologically think that's true. I mean, that's not the way that we believe. We believe that this life is not the final place. This life is going to end no matter what, and something much, much better awaits for us. And maybe that's exactly what happens to a guy like Uzzah. But God has set the standard. And that goes back to the fairness question that Joe was asking about. Like, all people will be judged. All people will die. If God hastens that for some people, we tend to see that as like, you know, I can't allow a God who's going to do that. It's like, we're all going to die. We're all going to be judged. Some people are just getting it sooner than others. Yes. I'm kind of wondering, like, when we get to the end of the series, if we understand God a little bit more, do you feel like we will proportionally like him a little bit more? I mean, hopefully we like him now, but I think for me, like, hearing these points to your point, it definitely does, like, shrink the discomfort, but there's still some discomfort, and it, to me at least it feels like, okay, I feel like I get God a little bit more, but there's, there's still kind of this hang-up where it's like, okay, even if that's sort of understandable, I don't... I don't like that he did that, and I and not that we have to get over that, but I'm sure you want us to probably go that way because that seems pretty important for like, you know, being a Christian. Sure. The next verses that come in Second Samuel about Uzzah is David getting angry with the Lord for killing him. Hmm. So your emotion is not unlike David, but we're looking at it from like I like a God who is going to be merciful to that person. I think in a way we're projecting, right? Like we want him to be merciful to us. And I agree with you that at the end of the series, what I would like to see is us have a better understanding of who God is. What if the better understanding of who God is, just to kind of, you know, fast forward a little bit, is the understanding that they had, which is when I say that in the next story about the ark, you see them carrying it with the poles and they're sacrificing and they take the steps they're supposed to take and then David does what he's supposed to do. I think the purpose of this was to show them God's character, to remind them that he was holy. If this reminds us that God is holy, then that has done its job. I will admit that I am less troubled about this story because I do believe in a God who if I saw him in this room, I would be annihilated. I believe in that God. I don't believe in the God that if I saw him in this room, I would just go running into his arms and give him a big hug. Um, partly because that's the image of God we see in so many places, in Revelation, in Daniel, in Isaiah. I'm not talking about Jesus incarnate among us. I'm talking about seeing God, whichever part, the Father, the Son, I don't even understand. And I believe that most of us have far too small a view of his holiness. And so when we see this, we're troubled. And there's a part of me where my view of God about his holiness has only grown Because when I see this, I start to remember that I'm to fear and worship and really understand God in that way. I'm hoping all of us would feel that way and less troubled at the same time would be a nice bonus. I think we have to like correct the tone here a little bit between this I'm your God and you're my people thing. So yeah, I am. I'm trying to do both. I want you to be less troubled about that story, but I'd rather you were more in awe and more able to examine your own life and say, yes, I don't trust God too. I'm just like that guy. Thank God he doesn't strike me down, right? But I'm just more in awe of you.
Yes. I think we have to just be careful, like, and you said this a lot, but when we look at these instances in the Bible, to really look at the full picture, because I don't necessarily think that the story about taking the life of the guy that gathered sticks in the Sabbath was about the Sabbath. Like, I think it was about something bigger. Like, you were saying, like, the issue, his heart, the distrust that God did all of this for these people, and they still, and, like, saw all these miracles and still didn't trust and still didn't disobey. Um, so it's got to be something bigger than just the Sabbath. And at the same time, it's got to be something bigger than just not trusting him to provide for him. Because that's where my issue comes in. Because it can't be about the provision and just the fact that, like, they weren't trusting him getting being provided for. Because people all over the world die every day of hunger. And they're not being provided for. Like, it happens where they can't provide for themselves or no one's providing for them or they're not magically getting food, you know what I mean? So there has to be, like, we have to look at the bigger picture. Like, at this specific time, the Israelites were literally with the presence of God and saw miracles and saw all this and still didn't trust, and there was a purpose in bringing that specific group of people out into the desert. And, like, we have to think about all those things when we look at all these stories and not just one, like, aspect of it. That's a good corrective. And maybe that's easy to lose sight of as we answer questions. Maybe you could read into why God might care about this, but God is clearly trying to set the tone after a series of rebellions and disobedience that my law is to be taken seriously and to be obeyed. The consequences are not just stated like, oh, and if you break the Sabbath, you'll be put to death. Like, but don't worry about it. God just said that, but he doesn't mean it. I'm still troubled by why he would even say it. And, you, and that's where I'm expecting people to come back and go, yeah, but it's still harsh to say that why even make the law? The fact that God enforces the law that he set does not trouble me. What maybe should trouble is why he set it in the first place. Let me skip to this to go on a little bit here. I want to show you a second step that you might want to consider being practical. After you better understand why a passage might be less troubling, and I'm not saying it's not troubling, I'm saying it's just less troubling, the next thing that you want to do is maybe consider how you deal with it. What idea do you have of who God is? And I want to address this because last week there were a couple competing ideas starting to come up. And I just want to present what they are because you might say, I need to think of how I view God. Here's one. If you're going to defend God's behavior, the first one might be that you believe that God just has some sort of divine immunity. And not to pick on Monique, but there was a little bit of that coming there last week, which is whatever God does is good because God does it. And so some people just believe that. Some people just say, hey, whatever God does is good because God does it. God can't do wrong. So whatever he's doing at that moment is okay. It's not okay, it's good, because God is good, and by definition, God acting means that whatever God is acting and doing is good. That's what that view is. So you should at least know that it's out there and think, do I believe that? I'm going to ask you in a moment if you do, I just want to tell you what they all are, and then hear from you, because I just hear, do you believe these things? Some other people believe a different thing. God has a just cause for his actions. There's always some righteous reason for his actions. Sometimes it's supplied in the story itself. Like God will say, the wickedness of the people of the earth is so bad right now, I'm just going to drown them all in a flood. So the reason is actually supplied sometimes. Or God might say, the reason you're going to annihilate these people when you enter into the land is because I don't want them staying in your midst because they're going to pollute you and your ideas about God. So you've got to clean out the land. So sometimes the reason is stated right there. We don't have to guess. 
Other times, like we were just doing a few minutes ago, we're trying to figure out why does Uzzah get struck down, because the story doesn't tell us, and David's clearly angry. So we have to read a little bit more and then say, oh, I think that must be the reason. Is that what you believe? Do you just believe that it must be a good reason? I heard a little bit of that last week, saying, you know, I don't know that God is good, but I have to believe that he is. God is acting for a greater purpose, a greater good. It's kind of a version of the just cause approach, but it just says that all the things that were done, God was doing for a purpose. Like, again, going back to, I'm going to clean out the land. There's a greater purpose for that. What's the greater purpose of cleaning out the land? Well, I don't want my people to be influenced by the people who live there. Or there's this one. God just acted differently in the Old Testament. We've actually even seen this when we talked about things like the Sabbath, like circumcision. There were certain rules that applied. They don't apply now. God was acting differently. He had, he had to reveal a standard over time. He couldn't just tell them all at once that I want you to be a peaceable nation. They just couldn't understand that. That he was going to allow certain things to happen. But later, when we get the new covenant, things change. And as the church grows, it changes even more. There's some people who think that's the explanation. Some people think God just works through sinful humanity. Like, God knows that people are evil and wicked and they're not going to follow him. So he thinks, well, I have no choice. I've got to work through these people. So if the only way they can do this is by, you know, killing their neighbor or something, I, I'm going to have to allow that to happen. In other words, God really is not doing it. He wants to work through us, and there's only one way to do it, which is to let us be as bad as we are. That's probably an oversimplification of this view. I'm going to leave one more on the screen, and we're going to come back to it later in the series, is the Old Testament just doesn't know what it's talking about. People just thought God did everything, so they just <coughs> wrote the scriptures to say that God said those things, but he didn't really say those things. And we're going to have to deal with that at some point. So being very practical, let me ask you this. Where do you lie on this of these different ones? Jolene? Um, I'd say up until, I'd say the one, two, three, four, the first four, a little bit of the first four, because God is divine and I feel like he is good, you know, and he does have a just cause for his actions, you know, to, to, to you know, for his kingdom, bring glory to him and so on. And um, we acted for the greater good. Obviously, it was for you know the end result, or or the end result for certain situations, like you said, to bring his people in to to you know make it a better place for them, whatever. Okay, I see so many skeptical faces. Like all these explanations aside, like I still am having trouble with God doing any of these things. Morgan. I actually <clears throat> largely agree with. Jolene, watch out. Oh. <laughs> uh, what I is, it's not as simple as that God has divine immunity, but I actually, I mean, in essence, is that when God says you will not understand my ways and my thoughts, they're higher than yours. If we take that seriously, that means all these categories that we find are extremely helpful, right? They are. I love categories. I'm type A. <laughs> categories are very helpful in my but if we really take God's mystery and greatness and <clears throat> truly being beyond us, if we were able to understand everything, God would cease to be God in my opinion. So it's not as simple as divine immunity, but it's actually saying, I do believe fully in God's goodness. I believe sometimes it is because there's a just cause, because there's a greater good, because he seemed to act differently in certain situations. Yeah, so it's not, it's not arbitrary, it's not foolishness, it's not, I do whatever I want, it's fine. But it is a deep belief, God is good, 
there are many situations that we will not fully understand, and that's because God is God and not as small as us. Okay, going this way, we're going to Jill. I think along with that, I am actually comfortable in the divine immunity category here because I think that if it were up to me, anything else becomes a way for me to start to interpret why God has done something. And that makes me uncomfortable because I think that that's kind of a recipe for really going the wrong way with it and misunderstanding. So I'm, this may seem simple, it may seem lazy, but I am just very comfortable thinking, okay, God has done this for a reason. It's not up to me to understand. It's up to me to obey and to do my best to Yes. I don't like the word immunity at all. Like, I just think that's the wrong word, and I just feel like that's kind of dishonoring and very, like, I don't, I, that does not apply to me. He doesn't need our immunity. Uh -huh. He's not immune to things. Um, he, he is God. He is holy. Therefore, what he does is holy and is good by his standards, not maybe by our human definition of what good might be, but it's, forget good, it's right. How about that? It's righteous. It's, it's right, it's God, it's, he's holy. Um, what tends to trouble me more than these stories kind of breaks my heart and troubles me that we even discuss it or like how we can fit God into our box to like him or like his personality. I don't, I don't know how to put words to it because I'm like so passionate about it, but for me it's like the opposite. I understand the God who you're annihilated in his presence. That makes sense to me that he's so holy, so great, so big. So all that makes sense that we deserve to die. We deserve this. Like those stories don't trouble me because we deserve that. And I see that that God to me makes sense that he's so much bigger and holy and pure and righteous and amazing. And as far as like liking God through these stories, for me, it's not even a question like to like. It's like I read through this and I go, wow, we deserve that. And yet you still love us. And yet you applied these same laws to yourself and submitted to death on a cross to die in the same way like you paid for our sins and the wages of sin is death. And so just how we should be killed, like you yourself allowed yourself to be killed. And like when you look at it from that perspective, how can you not be like fully in love with some a being who's so perfect and so above us and holy? that like even though we deserve this and this shows his holiness which actually comforts me by the way if god was not holy and someone was not annihilated in his presence there's something really wrong with that then you're not divine then you're not god then you're not like to me that doesn't make sense okay joseph i uh, mean i think for most part we don't even really need to like god i think oftentimes and we, we talk about god our father we're going to make a comparison to our parents there's oftentimes our parents love us they have us do things, and we don't necessarily know why when we're younger. We might find out later. we be like, oh, that, that was great. We don't really like it at the time. In the same way with God, but well, he does have his reasons, and like Morgan said, we don't really understand. And in this life, I don't think we are going to understand. So, on some level, well, okay, he does this. I don't necessarily like it, but at the same time, it's God. Okay. Yes. I think I agree with all of the, the categories here, except I would kind of change the last one to the people of the Bible improperly attribute actions to God. Um, and I say that because I, I think um, just following the text through the Old Testament to the New Testament, 
God doesn't change, the people change. And thus, it, it's kind of like they're maturing throughout the, the text. And so, <clears throat> going back to like the first category, um, like Joseph said, you know, our parents kind of walk with us in the beginning of our life, and then eventually they let us go. And I see, you know, God actually, you know, led them out of Egypt and, and got them going. And then, um, obviously, he had a just cause for all of these things. He, he kind of milked them along and then passed them out to, to, to continue after Jesus um, left us. Um, so I, I think I can agree with, with all of these, except for the, the last one. Let me just point out that all of these categories come from the book by Eric Siebert, Disturbingly Divine Behavior. And his ultimate point is the last one. That the reason that none of the others make sense, none of these other explanations make sense, is because we've just, we really just believe that the Old Testament says what it says, and that was really God, and it was recorded accurately. And that's a false assumption. That's his position. I told you I don't agree with that position, but I've put it up there because I think we need, at least need to fairly state it, and in the future week I'm going to come back to it one more time. But you should at least know where they've come from. I think we're going this way. Comments this way, Ray? Yeah. I don't disagree with what's been said about the holiness. I love everything that Monique had to say. Um, but I was talking to you about this yesterday. I feel like what you said comes from a lot of work. Uh, getting their spiritual work in your own life, and if I just take everything you said and apply it to my life without doing the work that it takes for me to get there, mm. then it won't be real, and I will find myself in a position of being in a false relationship with a God who I don't even, right. I'm not even in a relationship with him if I don't take these time. So I hope that God will have mercy on me and recognize that I'm a human being with reason. And so because of that, naturally I'm going to have issues that have to be worked through, and hopefully I will get there through this work because I do believe that those things are true. But I also think that it's important to wrestle through the things that trouble us so that we make sure that we're actually in an authentic relationship with God. And I will also add that if we don't do the work to wrestle through them, then when anyone asks us about them, we will either be unable to respond to them or we will fall apart ourselves. And I really want you to hear this because some of you might be thinking at this point, like, I don't even know why we're doing this series. And I want to state the reasons again. One is because I want us to know who God is and to see him differently than just the lovable guy that we hug once in a while, right? I want us to see this part of God. Uh, and it's this part we see most clearly in the Old Testament, even though Jesus displays it as well. We just don't seem to see it as much. The second one is because... People will ask us, and we need to be able to say something other than just, I don't know, I just think he's holy and I believe in him. Because that might satisfy us, but it will certainly not satisfy them. And the third reason, I really do believe that at times in our life, when you're not in this room and you don't have the safety of other people to come around you and support you, and you're in a place of doubt, or you're in a place of suffering, and that question comes up, you'll conclude and go, yeah, you know what, I don't know, and I don't even believe that it's true anymore. I think all three of those things can operate in this room. So... That's the reason that we're doing this harder thing. So I like what you said because I think we do need to do the work. Morgan? I think it's important, even though I made the statement of him being beyond our ways, God has also revealed himself. And if we don't like that God, or more importantly, love God, you know, we can't worship God. You can't worship someone that you don't admire, desire, uh, you know, put on a high place. So, so it does matter. I mean, it's not to say... It is to say his thoughts and ways may be greater than ours, but if we don't come to a place like Ray said where we can actually work through issues and actually come to love 
God, yeah, it's not gonna, it's not, you're gonna have no endurance in faith because I do love God, and that is because you thought through those things, and you can still have these, you know, convinced faith with some doubts, and you can give God the benefit because you've actually entered into a relationship and understand God's love at an experiential and intellectual level. So it's not enough just to say, well, it doesn't matter, God can do whatever he wants, and we don't have to like it. How does that lead to worship? There's no way that leads to worship. Okay, let me ask this. This will be like our last question to deal with. The people who look and say, I have no problem with what God does because what God does is good by definition because God has done it. And he has a reason whether I understand it or not because his ways are higher than my ways. I'm not expected to understand it. So it's great when I do that he reveals himself that way. But when he doesn't, I just walk by faith. All right. Let's just take that position for a moment. There are two arguments that have come up by Christians supporting these views, and I want to know what you think about them. One of them is, it's okay for God to authorize the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child because, and this is almost verbatim quote of this view, whatever God does is good because God has done it. So if God commits genocide or tells his people to act it out, it is good because God has commanded it. Let me try one more similar to it. When God decides to flood the whole earth and kill every person in it, his reasoning is so that Noah's family is going to survive and be the only ones. Everybody else is too infected with sin. We're starting over. So the act of killing every person, including children, who have no concept of what they've done or what their parents have done, is good because God has done it. That is an ultimate expression of those views at the top that he has a just cause and he's God. So whatever he does is good. If I'm the person who approaches you and says, that's the God you worship, all of you who just defended that view, I want you to explain to me how you're going to make me feel any better about that. Yes? Well, I would just say that like, because through dealing with this myself, I would substitute for my own mental sanity the word good for necessary. And that comes to the third one, which is always and where I've ended up is that, like, what are you even considering? Like, why would you even bother creating humanity if there was going to be this much suffering? There's got to be something at the end of time that will have made it worth it. There's got to be something that's so in the nature of God being good that is beyond what I can comprehend that I have to believe that there's something at the end of everything that's worth it. And so those actions were necessary to get to whatever that end is. Okay. Let me be the skeptic. So the greater good that the entire land be wiped clean of its inhabitants so that Israel is not infected by pagan practices, rituals, and gods. They go to war and they kill men, women, children. They annihilate whole villages and everything. And they move into the land and guess what? They still start worshiping idols and pagan rituals. And they still intermarry and they still do the same thing. How is God's greater good expressed there? That's where it comes in that... The Israelites are a story within the Bible of the human condition and the continual process of God telling us what to do. We disobey. Uh, God tries to make it work through a different way. We continue to disobey, and there's still grace, and there's still mercy, and there's still goodness within that. And like I think the, the fact that genocide came first only serves to emphasize it comes back again to God's mercy and God's love, because even though all of those people, like it was a genocide, that's terrible, that's awful, and yet, like at the end of all that, even though he went to those lengths to help these people when they sin against him, there's still love after that. 
Yes. Just going off what you said, I think that's kind of an example of God showing them, look, this is how you have to clear out the sin in your life. Although it's a, a greater um, like metaphor of that. And so from that, he's trying to teach these broken race of people, I mean, the, the humanity as a whole, how to live and how to get rid of the sin in their life. So ultimately, I think from that, they're still going to mess up, and he knows that. So to take from that the, the lesson that was provided in that, in that scenario. For a lesson that comes at the expense of all these people, that sounds kind of nutty. And I want to take it to the extreme, like, because each person I think is important and unique, but at the same time, it does ease my conscience a little bit to know that, like, during the flood of Noah, death isn't the worst thing. Like, we think that our end, like, us to end is the worst thing and the worst thing that ever existed, and it's not. I feel like those children would still go to heaven. They are still innocent. And this way, they're spared from all the other crap that they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Imagine the ad, we could run for Christianity. Let us kill all your children so they can get to heaven faster. We're going to take it to the extreme, but in the same sense, like, to create balance, I think we have an unbalanced view of death. Mm. I agree with that statement. Yes. I think, like, going off a little bit what Ray said, I don't know, this troubles me, but... Something that comes to mind too is like where the crucifixion and the resurrection factors in. And I kind of think like in terms of what you're saying about like this greater narrative, for me at least when I think it through, I think about there are all these things that don't quite add up. Like people were not, you know, like the, the wood gather, whatever, you know, people don't seem to be 100% off base and they die. So it feels a little bit unjust. But then at the same time, I think of, to your point about the narrative and ultimately like God trying to bring us closer to him, bring us like to him in whatever way possible. And I think about like, the ultimate way he did that was, you know, Jesus and suffering for us and taking on the sin of all the world. To me, in a way, like, that is the sin of the entire world on a blameless man. So there's, there's some kind of feeling of injustice there, but it starts to feel like a little bit reconciled. Like, I, I have an easier time reconciling it when I think of, like, ultimately what God did and what he took upon himself to ultimately, you know, restore us, I guess. And that... To me, that helps like round out my question before of like, I don't know if I like, and that's just, a, that's, that's a too simple way to say, I don't know if I'm being drawn closer or worshiping more so. So like, let's give it to the like, let's say to your point, how do we end the series being more in love with God and more worshipful of him and in awe than we were before? And that's, that's where the resurrection starts to play into me. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but that starts to make it feel all a little bit more like it could add up because that, I, I don't know what, injustice God did that could totally outdo that sacrifice. Carissa? My question is, why does God uh, choose to kill these people that do something that's wrong? Like, why doesn't he just remind them, like, hey, before uh, the Philistines had this, um, this is how I instructed you to carry the ark. Um, and now you're not carrying it the right way. Like, this is what you need to be doing. And I, I am remembering, like, you guys talking about, well, hey, we need to remember death isn't, like, the worst thing. Like, we don't want to have an imbalanced view of death. So I'm trying to hold that, but also at the same time, like, why do you think, do you have any thoughts about, like, why God chose, like, death? Is it to do, like, an exclamation point for humans to be like, because for us, that's often a big, like, wake-up call. Like, oh, we need to recheck some things, or... That's a big question. 
But I will tell you, I do believe it. It's the explanation point. I do believe that in the to state the point and to make sure that the point is made, that we as humans understand death, even though it's not the ultimate end. In fact, it could be the beginning of our next life, right, in a much better place. We understand death in ways that all the other things don't work. And our desire to see him act in mercy, which he does 99.9% .9 of the time, I think makes the point even more of an exclamation point. Because he seems to do this and then not do it again. Right? To kind of make the point that I said this was the penalty. I said this is the way things are supposed to be. I want to make sure you understand that I am holy. And that I do not change. And that I am all the things, the immutable. All You just go down the list of all that I am. The sovereign, the all-powerful, all those things. And all holy and pure. And I will be merciful. And I will be just. And I will be graceful. But I want to make this point clear. I really believe if you did that, and every time that happened, you just pull somebody aside and did that, I don't think we would take them seriously. We're too sinful for that. We are far too sinful that only maybe the loss of life could even snap us out of it for a moment to realize we're this is not getting around to come into the, into the, to stand in front of the holy God. Yeah, and then I wonder if that actually happens today. Because I know you talked about how it happened in the Old Testament and it happened in the New Testament. So I wonder now, like, but how are we to know that, you know, all of a sudden somebody is dead and, oh, it's because God is trying to make a point. I don't know. It's very dangerous to try to know because we don't have scripture being written to maybe fill in some of the blanks. But I know lots of people who walk around and say to each other, oh, I know the reason that happened to you. Like, that's very dangerous because we don't have the benefit of scripture to illuminate some of the things that were going on, like in Ananias and Sapphira. We have somebody actually saying what happened and why. Uh, so yeah, you're right. Maybe it, I, I, don't, I don't know that it doesn't happen today. Okay, I'm gonna take like two more comments and then close, because some people are like, this could go on all night. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna take four more comments and we're gonna close. Um, I think it's important to look at our definition of good, because we normally think of good as something that brings pleasure, brings happiness, or at least humans tend to look at good that way. But I don't think God is good just in the sense that God has the quality of of goodness, I think he literally is goodness incarnated. And from that, just as we can't fully understand God, we can't fully understand what is good, because that, that is God. And that's not extremely satisfying, but I think it's important for us to remember in looking at these questions of like, is that good? Is it not? Uh, isn't that an evil action? Okay. Wes. Bounce off Chris's comment, I think um, if God was trying to make a point, like if, if he still killed people today, like you said, it's dangerous ground, but I think if he was trying to make a point, it would probably be abundantly clear so that there wasn't room for misinterpretation. Like it, it seems like in the passages we looked at, it was abundantly clear, you know, like the guy that was taking the wood, they kept him and said they didn't know what to do with him. And Moses asked God and God told him to do this. I mean, there's, there's examples of it being very clear that that was God's will and not, oops. Yes. Um, the image that I have trouble with is um, the his people thing because when I think of like these are my people kill these people so that you don't get tainted but I'm like but don't you want us all do you pick and choose which one of us you want the after death situation so if they don't know God and now they never will know God or um, for me the image of God that troubles me is what about the ones that won't know you or they seem to not 
Matt, like you don't want them to infect your people, but we're all yours. I'm going to stop there because that's where we're going. I want to tell you that if I were the skeptic, that would trouble me from the answers that you've already gave back. So you're going to kill neighboring people to protect your people. So there's a little bit of that choosing, which we have to talk about. When I asked for your cards of issues you had, many of you had trouble with the idea that God chooses Israel and that he chooses people because that seems to heighten the unfairness for some of you. Also in your commentary, if I'm listening to it as a skeptic, I'm thinking you guys are far too comfortable with just the idea that he would kill anybody for some purpose like I don't want my people to be polluted, right? So we have to address that as we go forward. Look, the bottom line for us in this is this is supposed to be driving us to an understanding of God as holy. I think it's starting to work. Second of all, it's supposed to be so you can hear what some of this sounds like to other people. And again, you might think, hey, I'm comfortable with it. Good. Hey, I'm starting to see these holy. Good. But I'd still like you to be able to talk to somebody else who's equally troubled by this because there's a lot of literature out there right now that says you can't believe in this crazy God because of this. And if I just listen to what we said, I'm glad that we all have this faith posture. But I still think as a skeptic, I'd be a little bit scared by how comfortable we are to just be able to pass it on. We need to just be a little bit better at discussing it is what I'm saying. Not that you believe wrong. You just need to be able to address it to people who are out there equally dying without a knowledge of God because of this issue. Okay? Thank you for putting up with this tonight. Tonight was the most difficult one I think we've had so far. I told you as the series goes on, it's going to get even more difficult as we head on to what's coming next. Let me close it there and let's finish with some worship of God. Lord, we together as a group affirm your holiness and we scarcely understand what that even means. We see pictures of how you are holy. We see pictures of the ways that your intensity is so much that the angels cannot even look at you. They have to cover their face. That just the vision of you would be blinding and would annihilate any one of us. We don't really understand what that means, Lord. We play with these concepts and we know which sides of you we prefer. So Lord, in this series, grow the parts of us that we don't really understand about you. And Lord, I'm confident that that will only happen because your Holy Spirit is in us. So thank you for sending us the Spirit. Empower us through the Spirit. And this week, continue to trouble us. It's far too tempting to walk out of this room and forget about this, Lord. Trouble us until we start to appreciate even more your holiness. We pray this in your name. Amen.